So I'd like to begin first with the question, um, how do you make sense of life? If you were here last week, I forgot to bring my glasses today, or at least to the service, um, and, and I put on glasses as an object lesson, as an illustration of when, if you struggle with uh, seeing far away, as I get older, that's what's happening to my eyes, but if you put on glasses, all of a sudden things become clear. And so all of us have a lens in life, a set of lens that we put on, and it either makes our life clearer or muddier or darker or rosier or whatnot. And so we need to be able to ask the question, how do you make sense of life? What lens do you put on every day as you go about your day to make sense of it all? Now, that question, we could put it differently. When we ask, how do you make sense of life? We could also reword that to say, what values, what personal values guide you each day? Some of you today, if you're honest, it's status. You want to attain higher status or a certain status within a social group or at work, to have a certain type of office with a certain window and, and view. You want security, perhaps. This is the value that drives many of us, whether it's financial security or, or emotional security. For some of us, what drives us, what we value is to feel excited, to, to have our senses awakened, to have some sort of sensual experience, and that is our primary driver. For some of us still, it's all about being tactical and, and, and finding yourself on top, dominant, that you're winning and you're uh, achieving the goals that you've set out. Some of us still, even maybe in pursuit of that, we take a step back and go, okay, so how does this whole thing work? Well, what's the system going on here? And, and you have a brain, you have a curiosity, you enjoy trying to figure things out and to work the system to your benefit. And, and so you find advancement. And then some of us, probably the most kindest of us here, the, the sweetest hearts of us all is here, just our, our, our value, our driver is just to be soulful, just to really connect with people. Now, whatever it is that drives you, first, you, you need to be able to answer this question. What makes sense of your life? What values drive you? As we jump right into the text, picking up in verse 2, Solomon, he is the author of Ecclesiastes, and he was the second, or sorry, the third king of Israel and uh, at least between him, his father, and Saul, uh, he was the most uh, wealthiest, the most powerful, the most accomplished king in Israel's history. And he had it all, literally had it all. Everything that the world could offer him, everything that he could pursue after, and he had it all. And he writes Ecclesiastes towards the end of his life, and as he begins this journal entry at the end of his life, looking back on his life, his honest starting point, Solomon's honest starting point, verse 2, he cannot come off more powerfully, more bluntly, more in our face, vanity of vanities. In Hebrew, in Hebrew poetry, this is part poetry, part wisdom literature, but when the author, the poet would repeat words, it was on purpose to really emphasize that idea and so here, he does it twice. Vanity of vanities. But not only twice, again, says the preacher, vanity of vanities. Vanity, it basically means, it literally means just smoke, vapor, smoke of all smoke. This is pointless. It, it just, things that just disappear. You try to grasp it and it flips, slips through your fingers right away. But not only four times, but to make the point, as if we're not getting it, and this is his honest starting point, right from the beginning of the letter. All, everything, and he means everything. 
from the cradle to the grave, everything is vanity, is meaningless, is pointless. It's like smoke, vapor. And this is someone who had it all, who had it all. And this is his honest starting point to his letter. To try to bring it down to earth a bit and, and, and to compare it to, just to give an analogy, one expression that I love that I picked up during youth ministry was this idea that it all goes back in the box. And one of my favorite uh, games to play with my youth when I was a youth pastor was Risk. And if you're not familiar with Risk, it's basically a game of global domination. You're trying to rule it all, have it all, take it all. And so here I am in my uh, late 20s, early 30s, um, playing, just manipulating, psychologically devastating these teenagers, and they didn't even know what was coming to them, and, and I, I would just conquer, divide and conquer, pretend that I'm on allying with this kid, and, but really turn on his back, stab him, and so forth, and they started picking up, okay, Pastor Albert is not so holy, <laughs> and, and so this would become a tradition, and remember, this one student, he so much wanted to beat me. So much wanted to beat me, and he finally did. He finally did. And I remember I'd learned this phrase, and, and as he was gloating, his ego was puffed up, I just started patting his back, said, Paul, I'm sorry. You know what? Here's the greatest lesson about risk. It all goes back in the box. And I started putting his pieces back, his army, my army, his cards, and and, and then you could see his face sink, and, and he was getting the lesson. And, and it's a metaphor for life, really. And that's what, this, this is just another way of saying what Solomon is saying, his honest starting point. Vanity of vanities, it all goes back in the box. What's the point of all this striving and fighting and, and trying to win everything when he's facing the end of his life? Now to jump from sort of youth ministry stories to, to, to bigger words that maybe you've heard. Another way to put it is some of us, the way we're trying to play this game of life is we're trying to be moral people. We're trying to be good people. Perhaps for you today, if you're honest, really the way you're trying to play the game of life is, is, is to be hedonistic. And, and that doesn't mean just having as much sex as you want or whatever. It, it, it basically, at essence, at core, it just means that you're really living for yourself, your number one, and your maximal pleasure, whatever that looks like. Perhaps some of you have already just uh, thrown out God out the window and said, you know, this life is it. I'm going to try to make sense, and I'm not going to deal with the big question, well, if I die, then really is there any meaning? But I'm going to try to make the most of this life and make the most sense of this life through science and observation and just being a good person. But if you're honest and if you're quiet, if your soul quiets down enough and you really think, okay, well, even if I live a meaningful life, I make up a meaning for my life that I'm happy with, but then I die at the end, what's it all for? And it really becomes absurd. It really becomes confusing. Then why am I doing all this really if it's just going to end? Last week and today again, and for our series, I offer this simple definition of life. It's not a perfect definition, but but a working definition for us today in this series. Life is our day-to-day. -day. Our day-to-day. -day. All the small things to the big things are day-to-day -day in relationships, at work, play, and rest. Now, right off the bat, we're going to see in verse 3, Solomon, as he's reflecting on the absurdity of, a, of it all, he, he connects it right to work right away. Just to put work in perspective, there are 168 hours in a week, and work, um, 
these numbers aren't obviously accurate, but roughly speaking, they're not precise, but roughly speaking, if you're working full-time, 40 to 80 hours a week. Maybe you're working less, maybe you're even working more. But roughly anywhere from a quarter to half of our week, a quarter to half of our lives during the week are occupied by work, whatever your work is. And so if you're going to make sense of life, you really need to make sense of work because it's such a significant part of your life. So the big question that I want to leave with you today, now recall, Ecclesiastes, I love how one commentator put it, that Ecclesiastes is, is really a great discussion guide. It's, it's almost like a guide for a journey. And I believe it's in the Bible at the exact place, sort of in the middle as God meant it to be. But this commentator reflects, and I appreciate the reflection, that it would aptly be put at the beginning of the Bible as you approach life and the big questions of life and eternity and death and, and so forth. Ecclesiastes is offered to us as a discussion guide to really raise the tough questions that all of us need to ask, should ask, if we want to make sense of life. And so today, the big question is, why do you work? Why do you work? Three sub-questions I want to answer to help us answer that big question is, first, how do you make sense of life? We've already been talking about it. Second, how do you make sense of work, more specifically? And third, who makes the most sense of life and work. So we've already tried to answer a little bit and think about that first question. So let's move to the second question. How do you make sense of work then, specifically? Now, I want to show you that Solomon, as he is reflecting on his life, what, where he starts is reflecting on work. In verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? That could be rephrased, what does man gain by all the work at which he works? Solomon was being honest about his identity and work. Again, poetry, he's repeating this idea of work twice, and, and, and I think he's, suggesting, he's, he's saying that, look, work is so important to me. In fact, perhaps I've, I've even found my identity in my work. Now, toil then, this word that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes, I want to give you another analogy. I want to compare it to a hurricane. Hurricanes have been in, in the headline this past week, not only uh, in North America, Hurricane Florence, but I believe there's one brewing close to the Philippines and so forth, a typhoon. And, and so we know the, 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 the power of a hurricane. And so if we think of our souls as a hurricane, okay, just to use an analogy, and that epicenter, that hole in the middle of the hurricane is, is our soul and then and then life is going on all around our soul. And even at the outer skirts, it's, it's violent, it's windy, and life gets windy and, and, and busy and chaotic. Now, did you know that with a hurricane, the most violent part is right the, the rim of that hole, that center in the hurricane. It's called the eye wall. It's the most violent part. And so just try to track along with me in this analogy. On the outer skirts of the hurricane, it's sort of the surface of things, the, our, our daily grind, the things that we actually experience day to day. When you go to work, the people you see, the, the pressures you feel, the grind of work. But beneath the grind of work, there probably is some inner desire, motive, some striving for results, right? But then when you slow down and pause 
then you start to think and wonder, so why am I working so hard? Why am I dealing with all these pressures and due dates and deadlines and difficult personalities, difficult children, whatever it may be? And then so you become uh, in touch with suffering and trouble. You become attuned to that. And then as you get closer and closer to the center, closer and closer and really begin to listen to your soul, your inner thoughts, then you get to where Solomon is beginning in Ecclesiastes, even an existential crisis. What's the meaning of it all? Now, as a practical application, perhaps today, if, if you are experiencing lots of stress, if you're working too much, or on the opposite, you are procrastinating, you are underperforming because maybe that's a symptom of the fact that there's something, some inner turmoil going on. Or maybe you're drinking too much, or you're turning to other substances to, to find some, uh, some, some respite. Need to pay attention to these, these signs. Solomon certainly was at the end of his life. And he was also being honest as he was reflecting about wanting gain. And, and so scripture here is giving us permission. It's creating a safe space for you and I to be deadly honest about why do we work. And perhaps you need to just be able to say to yourself honestly, it's because I want to gain. And so Solomon asked, what does man gain? by all the toil, by all the work at which he works under the sun. So again, just to make clear, for Solomon, work was first literally, toil, sorry, was literally first work, the grind of work. But it had layers of meaning as well. Then it got to, why am I striving for these results, wanting results? And then another layer, a deeper layer still, toil is about the suffering and trouble that I face because of all the work that I face. And then finally, the deepest layer of it all, what's the meaning of it all? Now here, as Solomon, he's being honest about wanting gain. Gain is things of profit, excellence, and advantage. Solomon lived for gain. And in some sense, Scripture is giving you permission. It's creating a safe place for you to say, even to God, to, to, to hurl a prayer up to God. God, I want security in this world. I want to be able to save up some money. I want to make that purchase. I want to find that promotion. I want to be able to experience these things and have these pleasures. We, we work, if just to summarize it, a generalization, but a summary, we work to gain perhaps, first of all, just a paycheck. For some of us, it's about survival. Just being able to put food on the table, pay the bills, put clothes on our back. For some of us, what we want to gain is position. We want to climb up that ladder. And because those positions mean more power, and more power means, I didn't include it here, but you could perhaps even play more. And then perhaps you're looking for some personal fulfillment. Now Solomon, he was honest about all these things, about wanting this gain. But Solomon was also honest about wanting this life, this life. He, he wanted to experience these things here and now. I'm certain that Solomon had some sense of eternity and life after death. But here, from the very beginning of this letter, how Solomon, his honest starting point is, God, I've tried to live for this life. I want to gain all these things right here, right now. And we see that when he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
He's being very genuine about trying to make sense of this life. Now, let's pause there, and especially to my Christian friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ. It takes maturity, but sometimes Christians, there's that wonderful saying, I don't know who made the quote, but Christians sometimes are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. And, and, and that is a, a call-out to, to Christ's followers. We're meant to be of earthly good as we live our lives in the name of Christ and, and following Christ as his disciples. We're meant to be of earthly good. We're meant to be of salt and light to this world. And God wants to use us to preserve this world, to uh, continue to spread his good news so that there could be more and more people and glory of God in eternity. But sometimes we, we don't think enough about this life. I mean, sometimes we think maybe too much, but you've got to find that sweet spot. And here, Solomon, he's, he's being honest about wanting this life. And so it's giving us permission to think about this life as well. Now, just quickly as well, he was honest about the repetitive grind. The first three verses, he intros, and then now for the next three verses, he just repeats about repetition. <laughs> that life here, verses four to seven, the, the, the sentiment that we're supposed to feel is just this, if you've ever seen the movie Groundhog Day, it's a comedy, but it's kind of a nightmare where the, the main character keeps waking up to the same day and the whole point is he's trying to improve himself as the same day repeats us, not repeat the same mistakes and so forth. But Solomon here at the end of his life, even having it, had it all and tasted everything, his starting point is to say life basically has just been this cyclical, unending, maybe feeling like a hamster wheel. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and it just rinse and repeat all over again. I highlight verse 6 because this week the world is seeing two devastating hurricanes or typhoon, whatever you want to call it. And here, verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And, and so perhaps some of us here, actually even in my lifetime, I've, I've seen enough hurricanes that hurricanes just happen again. The winds blow again. Here we go again. Going to hear and have to deal with headlines of, of people losing their homes and even people dying again and again. Just round and round and round it goes. And it can feel like a nightmare. But Solomon here, he was also honest about our denial. Even though deep in our hearts, we're attuned to the vapor-like quality of life, the meaningless of it all sometimes. Solomon says, look, I'm at the end of my life and another thing I've observed, all things are full of weariness, but a man cannot utter it. What he's saying there is, basically, we don't want to admit it. We want to just keep on striving. We want to keep on, we're, we're happy to just try to keep climbing up the ladder or keep running on the treadmill. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now for me, and uh, I've shared openly about, first, I, I, I thank God so much right now that uh, I'm in a season of having come out of depression, and it seems like it's at bay. But there was a point where my depression was very dark, and, 
And as I was going through my daily grind, the moment that it would hit me the most darkly, the, the, the darkest, is after the morning grind. You get up early, you, you, you do your thing, you get the kids ready, you are saying goodbye to your wife, and so forth, so forth. And then as you come into the garage, and as the garage door went up, that, that, first, that was my first moment of quiet in the day where my mind would actually just sort of slow down. And it was those moments that I actually became honest with where I was at. And my point in sharing that is maybe to give you a reference point. Each of you need that place to quiet down and be honest with God, with yourselves, to not be in denial, to courageously face whatever issues and matters are really deep down in, in that eye of the storm of perhaps what your soul is going through. And so Solomon's honest starting point again, just to go back to verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so it begs us the big question, the big question today, why, why do you work? Why do you work? Today is definitely more of uh, just trying to poke you and, and get you to think, ask these questions. And so this big question, why do you work? So the third big question today then, who makes the most sense of work? Is there a hope? Is there a hope that you can wake up tomorrow morning and transcend all the meaninglessness, transcend all the vanity and the striving? And even though your work might be demanding, that you can be in that environment with a hope and a joy, and you have a lens that you put on, and you're actually happy to be at work, no matter how challenging or stressful it might be. And so this question is trying to get at that answer. There is a person who makes the most sense of work in life. See, Solomon, he longed for something truly new. That was going to be Solomon's answer to the meaninglessness. Because as he saw, basically, having experienced and tasted it all at the end of his life, basically, one reason why it was all meaningless for him was because there was everything was the same. There was nothing new. It's just all repetitive. There's, there's no meaning to this. And so he was looking for something truly new. And so he says in verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. This past week, a certain technology company released their latest phones, and, and I have to be able to say, I, I'm, I'm an Apple junkie. I'm, I'm an Apple cultish follower. <laughs> but I want to admit that, and, and if you'll believe me, okay, believe me, I wasn't impressed. It's like, eh, meh, you know. I think I was impressed up to probably like iPhone 6. <laughs> and then after that, just like, ah, this doesn't impress me anymore. And... and, and and where we, as a humanity, as a culture, try to find some sense of life and meaning is if we can present something new to the world, 
a new me, a new hairdo, a new outfit, a new job, a new whatever it is. We want some sense of newness. But Solomon's saying, look, doesn't matter how many new models and versions of the phone that you're going to come out with or technology or clothes or whatever, let's be honest, it's not new. And so let's be honest, by new, in quotes, our culture merely means something already existing that's been just, quote-unquote, newly discovered. What I mean by that is this, even new scientific discoveries, it's really been all there. As a Christ follower, I believe God has created this universe. He has placed all the medicine, all the science, all the, 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 the seeds of our technology, it's been there from the onset of creation and he's just merely been giving us the mind, the intelligence, the, the curiosity, the ability to discover these things that are already there. Let's be honest. By new, our culture merely means something already existing that's been newly manipulated. If you think of the brilliance, the, the, just the advancement of smartphones these days, it really, way back in the day, it wasn't iPhone, it was iPigeon, Right? Just the calling pigeon. The, the whole idea was there of, of still communicating and sending messages. And, and basically, we've just manipulated nature and, and science and so forth to, to make new tools. But, and yes, it might be new in that it's, it's newly manipulated, but it's really nothing new. One of my favorite lines from one of my uh, favorite uh, bands, U2, and they say, every artist is a cannibal every poet a thief. And what you two is saying there is there's nothing new under the sun. Even creativity, even new poems and songs and lyrics, they're just re-expressions of the same ideas and, and other poets borrowing from other artists and so forth. And so Solomon, he longed for something truly, truly new. And Solomon, verse 11, he longed for something to remember. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Solomon wanted to make his mark, but he had the sober reflection. Even though I built the temple, even though I was one of the most dazzling, just pomp and circumstance kings with being able to gloat to the world leaders, 700 wives and 300 concubines and, and the richest and wisest. He had the sober realization, I'm going to be forgotten. I'm going to be forgotten. Just to put it into perspective, a few weeks ago, this story really broke my heart, I think partly because we have some Brazilians in our, our church. But did you know, did you hear about in Rio, the history of uh, the, the Museum of Natural History, in one night, 200 years of collections and artifacts and works and history, 200 years of hard work to bring all that culture in one space and to protect it. There was a fire, and just in one night, they couldn't save any of it. Just like that, gone. Not to be remembered any longer. And so Solomon, as he's trying to make sense of his life, and specifically work, 
work. He, from the very beginning, it's so easy to just glance over this. From the very beginning of his book here, Solomon hints at someone other than himself. Verse 1, the words of the preacher. Notice Solomon here doesn't refer to himself in first person, by his name. He wrote another book, or two other books, but his other book of wisdom, the Proverbs, he makes it clear. I'm the author of Proverbs, and he wants people to know that he penned Proverbs. But here in Ecclesiastes, this book that is digging at the deep meanings of life and specifically work, he is a bit more ambiguous. The preacher, but now he becomes, even in his ambiguity, becoming, he's giving hints. The son of David. Why? Because all of Scripture and God's promise to David that there would be one day someone in your lineage, David, a son of yours, a descendant, through whom I will bring the truest meaning of life. I will bring the true new. I'll bring real new life. And he will be king in Jerusalem, king over the new Jerusalem, the new creation. Who is this person? Jesus, in Revelation 21.5, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. He is the one person in history whose claim to be able to make something truly new will come to pass. He will make a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. He is the one who is offering through his good news. When you place your faith in Christ, he gives you a new heart. He takes your heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh, and he gives you new life as he fills you with his spirit. And as our world pines to be remembered, Jesus, he said of himself, he gave us, and we did it this morning. I encourage you guys if you want to experience communion every week, every first and third Sunday, we have an earlier communion. We call it morning communion, and it's a more reflective uh, mode of, of uh, celebrating the Lord's table. We invite you to come out to that. We've already celebrated communion today, but there at that service, we remembered Christ. He said, I'm going to give you a tradition, and this is the one act, the one event, the one glory that is going to be remembered not only for history, but eternity. And we'll be praising God for the salvation of our souls and the forgiveness of our sins, remembering what Christ did in giving up his body. See, Solomon, he's hinting at someone even greater than himself. We'll really flesh this out as the series goes along, but here you contrast Solomon and Jesus, just to give you a little preview. And here is this earthly king Solomon who had it all. The kingdoms were before him, pleasures, wealth, fame, wisdom. And Jesus, he had every opportunity to take a hold of even X times more than Solomon had. In fact, that was his very first temptation or that temptation that we know of in, in the desert. That Satan offered him the kingdoms and all the pleasures and, and fame and so forth. And yet here's this Jesus that Solomon's hinting at. They say, a truly wise person 
learns from other people's mistakes because they realize they don't have the time to make all the same mistakes and learn from it. And Jesus, I have no doubt that he grew up on Ecclesiastes as well. He was immersed in Ecclesiastes and in the rest of OT scripture. And here is a pure-hearted king who, didn't, who learned from Solomon's mistakes and didn't have to go after all those things and yet accomplished the one perfect work that will be remembered and through him all things being made truly new. So let me end with a story and a, one big practical application for today. Tolkien, genius author, literary author, and he wrote Lord of the Rings, his most famous work in The Hobbit. But as he was struggling with writing, he, he hit um, a, a, a roadblock, just a dead end, and his, he didn't know where to go next with Lord of the Rings. And so to get his mind off Lord of the Rings, he started writing a little short story called Leaf by Niggle, and it was uh, a symbolism of his own struggle. He's niggle, and niggling means to just be working stressfully, frantically, chaotically, and confused. And, and niggle, he wanted to bless his town with this mural of a beautiful tree. But to keep the story short, basically, he had trouble painting it and knowing what colors to use, and he passed away. He didn't finish it. But there was one little leaf that he painted perfectly, beautifully. And he knew that was the one piece that he was satisfied with, and then he passed away, and the town saved it. Now, Tolkien was, uh, is a believer of Christ, was on this earth, and still is in eternity. And, and in this story, Niggle is welcome to eternity. And in eternity, there was his whole tree. See, what he had been working on on earth, even though it wasn't complete, even though it was imperfect, even though it was not everything he thought it would be, the message of his story is, as God has welcomed him into eternity, God weaves that into his perfect new creation. And his expression of delight is, there it is, my work, my tree. God has somehow brought it into his new creation. And he's done with it even more than I ever thought I could. So here's the one big practical application for you. You can find genuine spring in your step at work. When you go tomorrow morning, and I know some of you, I don't mean to belittle any of your work situations, whether it's at home or at school, or at an office job or, or manual labor, whatever it is, all work is dignified We'll get into that in other uh, messages down the road. But you can find genuine spring in your step at work when you believe that everything you do now, because of Christ, he's your motivation, his love for you, with Christ as you walk with him through the day, and for Christ. In your heart, you know you're giving your best because you want to make your Father in heaven smile because he's loved you and you want to just spend your energy to please him with the gifts he's given you. Everything done now because of Christ, with Christ and for Christ, will carry over and be woven into the perfect workmanship of the one lasting and glorious endeavor, Jesus' kingdom and the new 
creation. Amen.